welcome to the fifth episode of Hotline Crime. In the first ever two-part episode for this podcast, we'll be going over an infamous true crime case. You've definitely heard of him, or at the very least, you've heard his voice. A voice that influenced a generation, a legendary storyteller, and one of the most prominent MCs in the history of hip-hop. He still tops people's greatest of all time lists over two decades after his untimely death. His life ended when he was just 24 years old, leaving behind two children, an iconic legacy, and a mystery coded in conspiracy. His name is Christopher George Latour Wallace, but you probably know him better as Biggie Smalls, Biggie, or the Notorious B.I.G. Christopher was born May 21, 1972 at St. Mary's Hospital in Brooklyn, New York City. He was the only child born to Valletta Wallace and Selwyn George Latour. Both of his parents came from Jamaica. His father was a local Jamaican politician and a welder. He had left them when Christopher was just two years old. His mother was a preschool teacher, later holding two jobs to support them and send Christopher to a private school. He excelled in his English classes, even winning awards for his efforts. Valletta and Christopher lived on the third floor of an apartment building at 226 James Place in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn. The surrounding blocks would become his stomping grounds, as his mother was almost always working during the day and going to school to receive her master's degree at night. She wasn't aware of who Christopher would become until much later. When Christopher was 10 years old, he started getting his haircuts at a barbershop called Respect for Life, about a one-minute walk from his home. His barber was named Chandler Smith. They grew close throughout the years. You can actually hear him reference Chandler as Pop from the barbershop in his song titled Warning. Christopher would continue to receive his haircuts here for the remainder of his life. His desire to make money started young. As a child, he got his first job at Met Food Market. Met Food Market was close to his home, and it originally opened in 1967 by Sam Witte. Christopher would go to the market during the summer and ask the owner, Joaquin Witte, if he could bag groceries for tips. A lot of kids did this back then. Since then, this supermarket was upgraded in looks and renamed to chain supermarket Key Food. The current owner is Sam Witte's grandson, Rocky Witte. On March 9, 2017, this supermarket honored the 20th anniversary of his death by giving out custom-stenciled Biggie bags, showing Biggie wearing his signature crown. The owners also plan to commission a mural on the outside wall of the shop commemorating Biggie. Christopher went to Queen of All Saints Middle School when he adopted his first moniker. When he was just 12 years old, his classmates started calling him Big due to his height and size. Of his own admission, this was also around the time he would start to sell drugs for money. He would work the area on Fulton Street between St. James Place and Washington Avenue. At 14 years old, he worked as a counselor at Congregation Beth Olin Park in Slope, Brooklyn. He assisted the younger children while his mother taught the preschool class. It was around this time his mother gave him an 8.30 curfew. Christopher attended a private school in Clinton Hill, Brooklyn, the Roman Catholic Bishop Lawlin Memorial High School for a while, and then Sarah J. Hale High School, before eventually transferring to the George Westinghouse Career Center and Technical Education High School in downtown Brooklyn. This was the same school that future artists DMX, Jay-Z, and Busta Rhymes attended at the same time. His interest in music started young as well. Christopher's neighbor, Donald Harrison, spoke with him when he seen him sitting on the stoop of his building. Harrison was a jazz saxophonist 
who noted similarities between jazz and the startup of 70s style hip hop. He would eventually start giving Christopher music homework, having him listen to jazz and teaching him to scat alongside the saxophone. He would teach him to slow things down and take the time to phrase each note, working on various tonguing, speed, and agility. It would later be said that this resulted in Biggie's unique, adept flow and timing. Although he had been a delight to raise, his mother started running into problems with him when he started high school. He had become rebellious and started disliking school. When he was in the 10th grade, his mother received a phone call from one of his teachers. This teacher had apparently sent multiple notes home with Christopher for Valletta to receive that related to his behavior, but Christopher never passed them on to his mother. She also found out he had been missing a lot of school. Valletta had no idea of this because he left every morning with his books and his school supplies. The teacher told his mother a story of what happened in class one day. The teacher was attempting to calm down the class, and while doing so, she told Christopher that if he didn't pay attention, he would end up being a garbage man. Seemingly out of the blue that particular evening, he asked his mother how much a garbage collector makes, and she informed him that they start out at about $24,000 a year. He had also found out an average teacher's salary at the time was about $22,000 a year. So the next day when he went to school, he confronted that teacher in front of the class, explaining the salaries. If I did become a garbage collector, I would be making more than you. So that's cool. Valletta ended up talking to her son about this, and he assured her he would start going back to school every day, and she believed him. Until one day, she received a phone call from police about a prowler on her apartment's rooftop. She found out her son kept a trunk on the roof full of polo shirts, jewelry, at least a dozen of his size 14 shoes, books, and notebooks. He had been keeping the stash up there as to not tip his mother off to his true activities. He would leave in the morning dressed conservatively with books in hand, go up to the rooftops and change into his nice street clothes, then change back before he came home at night. When his mother confronted him that night, it turned into a big, ugly argument. She was doing everything she could, even having him picked up by truancy officers, but nothing was stopping his behavior. He had started to act out at home as well. He would bring his friends over and create a cacophony. There was loud talking, loud music, banging on furniture. His mother said it was getting out of hand and she told him to knock it off and he came out and said, Ma, please calm down, we're just practicing. To which she asked, practicing what? He told her he was practicing music and she stated it wasn't music, it was noise. Coming to the realization he could no longer do this stuff at home, he started going across the street to Orient Temple to practice his music. This was a Masonic temple whose basement could be rented out for parties. This would become one of the first venues he would perform at with future protege group Junior Mafia. His mother noticed large crowds would go into the basement, but she couldn't imagine they were there to see her son perform. After all, she didn't like his music and she didn't think he was a good singer. Hip-hop was new to her and she couldn't make out the music in it. To her, it was literally just noise. But as much as Christopher enjoyed the music, his desire for money outweighed the thought of being an artist. At age 17, Christopher would drop out of school altogether to deal full time. At one point, while Christopher wasn't home, his mother was cleaning his room. She had found a plate that looked to be covered in old mashed potatoes under his bed and threw it away. When he returned, he went to his room but came out panicked. He asked his mom if she had been in his room, to which she admitted she had been cleaning his mess and threw it away. A confused Valletta then watched him dig through the garbage, attempting to collect what his mother thought was just old, dried up mashed potatoes. She wouldn't learn until after his death, when she heard him talking of the incident in a taped interview, that it hadn't been a plate of old food. In fact, it was crack. 
and he had to dig it out of the garbage and rinse barbecue sauce off of it before he could repackage it and sell it. In 1988, he started dating a woman named Jan Jackson. She met him while coming home from work. She didn't know him very well, but they had mutual friends. She was on a bank of payphones when he came in and started making jokes with her, asking why she's so serious all the time. They would continue to date for a few more years. In 1989, Christopher was arrested for carrying a loaded, unregistered firearm. He was sentenced to five years probation for this, and in 1990, he was arrested for violating his probation, and just a year later, he was arrested in North Carolina for dealing crack. He spent nine months in jail before he had made bail, but while in jail, he spent a lot of time on his music. After his release, Biggie Smalls was born. He used this name in part to his size, being six foot three and over 300 pounds, and as a reference to Calvin Lockhart's character in the 1975 film, Let's Do It Again. He made a demo tape with no serious intent to become a big musician called Microphone Murder. This demo tape was given to DJ Mr. C. In 1992, it was passed to the editor of The Source, the world's longest running rap periodical. In March of that year, he was featured in the magazine's unsigned hype column. This eventually led to record producer Sean Combs also known as Puffy, Puff, Puff Daddy, Diddy, and P. Diddy, setting up a meeting between him and Biggie. Biggie was signed to Uptown Records immediately. In April 1993, his single titled Party and Bullshit appeared on the Who's the Man movie soundtrack. Biggie also found out his girlfriend of four years, Jan Jackson, was pregnant with his child. In mid-1993, Sean Combs was fired from Uptown Records, but created a new label, Bad Boy Records, just a week later. Biggie, who took Combs for his word, followed and signed to Bad Boy Records the same day it was founded. Biggie, being a small-time drug dealer and beginning a promising rap career, ran into a young dropout and department store employee named Kimberly Jones by chance on a street corner. She had performed an impromptu rap for him, and according to her, he was sold. Kimberly would later take the name Lil' Kim, and when Biggie put together his hip-hop group, Junior Mafia, she became the only female in the group. Lil' Kim and Biggie also became lovers. She looked up to him, and he helped her create her image. She modeled her flow after that of Biggie, with added aggression and grunts. Her image revolved solely around her sex appeal, and he encouraged her to cultivate a style that would later be dubbed gangsta porno rap. Biggie and Jan had split, but on August 10th, 1993, when Jan was 22 and Biggie was just 21, Jan gave birth to Tiana Dream Wallace. Despite being signed to Diddy's label, Biggie continued to sell drugs to support his daughter financially. After Diddy found out about this, he did all but force Biggie to quit. He made him choose drugs or a career as a hip-hop artist. He assured Biggie that he could get him everything he ever wanted, that good things would come, but that he'd need to stop dealing and focus on music. He didn't want to back an artist in and out of jail, so Biggie chose to stop dealing and focus on the rap game. While Biggie was on the brink of stardom, his best friend and closest confidant, Damian D-Rock Butler, offered to take a weapons charge for Biggie. His record was clean, and he wanted Biggie to be successful. After D-Rock was released from prison, he stayed close as Biggie's personal butler until his death. While trying to create a name for himself, Biggie soon found out there was an artist already using the name Biggie Smalls, just spelled a little differently, who was Thug Life and Tupac affiliated. This Biggie had already began releasing singles, and it was reportedly Tupac who had become an acquaintance of Christopher, who asked him to change his name to avoid confusion. 
but others have suggested that he changed his name in fear of legal copyright infringement from the producers of the movie he got the nickname from. Either way, he started recording under the name The Notorious B.I.G., although some people, including himself, would still refer to him as Biggie Smalls and Big Papa for years to come. In 1993, Biggie was featured on a remix to the Mary J. Blige single, Real Love, which peaked at number 7 on the Billboard Hot 100. During the remainder of that year, he continued featuring on remixes that were a little bit less successful. Biggie and Tupac first encountered each other in 1993 in Los Angeles. Biggie was in California working and had asked the local drug dealer to introduce him to Tupac. Tupac then invited Biggie and his entourage to his house. In a Vice article, an intern for Biggie's label named Dan Smalls said that at Pac's house, he shared a big freezer bag of the greenest vegetables he had ever seen with them. Tupac got them high and pulled out a green army bag filled with unloaded handguns and machine guns. The young group had been running around in the backyard playing with the unloaded guns when Pac walks into the kitchen and starts cooking a meal for his company. They were all drinking and smoking when Pac called them in and they seen the steaks, french fries, bread, and Kool-Aid. Everyone was just sitting around eating and drinking and laughing. And Dan says that's where Biggie and Pac's friendship truly started. Over the next while, Pac gifted Biggie a bottle of Hennessy. And when Tupac was in New York, he came by Biggie's neighborhood, picking him up in a white limo and playing dice with the locals of Brooklyn. And when Biggie went to California, he slept on Pac's couch. They had even freestyled back-to-back -back at a concert called Budweiser Superfest at Madison Square Garden in 1993. But despite the cameo at the concert, Biggie still wasn't well-known outside of Brooklyn. Pac paid special attention, grooming Biggie and having him perform at his concerts. At some point, Biggie feared the new Bad Boy Records label wouldn't take off and had asked Pac to take over as his manager so he could be on his monetary level. But Pac declined and told Biggie to stay with Puff that he would be the one to make Biggie a star. In November of 1993, Pac and Biggie were at a club in Manhattan called Nell's, where Tupac met a 19-year-old woman named Ayanna Jackson, and she ended up going back to his hotel suite. Four days later, she met up with Pac again, but it wasn't just Pac this time. It was his road manager, Charles Fuller, and a few others. It was there she alleged that the group gang-raped her and forced her to perform oral sex. Pac says he wasn't in there when this happened, that he left the room when the other men came in, and he went to sleep. Jackson called the police, and Tupac and a few members of the group were arrested. While there, the police found guns that Pac later said had belonged to Biggie. Tupac denied the allegations, but after the trial, he told Vibe that he blamed himself for not doing anything to protect Jackson from the other men. Pac also told a New York Daily News reporter that one of the men had set him up. Tupac had started going wherever he wanted, wearing expensive clothing and jewelry. He had felt secure and invincible, and him and Biggie were close as ever. In July of 1994, Biggie appeared on a remix to Long Island-based rapper and label mate Craig Max, Flava In Your Ear, which also featured LL Cool J and old schoolmate Busta Rhymes. This song reached number 9 on the Billboard Hot 100. In late July, Biggie met R&B singer Faith Evans, the first woman signed to Sean Combs' Bad Boy Records, at a photo shoot for the label. He fought to get her phone number, she didn't have time for things like this, but he persisted and bluntly told her that one day, he's going to marry her. And sure enough, eight days later, on August 4th, 1994, becoming quite the power couple, Christopher the Notorious B.I.G. Wallace and soon-to-be iconic R&B singer Faith Evans tied the knot.
On August 9, 1994, Biggie had his first solo artist chart success with the song Juicy. It reached number 27 as the lead single to his debut album yet to be released. A little over a month later, on September 13, 1994, that debut album, Ready to Die, was released. It eventually reached number 13 on the Billboard 200 chart. This album had brought much-needed attention back to East Coast hip-hop after years of Dr. Dre dominating the nation with G-Funk West Coast artists. Through paying lawyers and supporting his family, Tupac's money started dwindling. In late 1994, he accepted an invitation to record a feature verse for a rapper named Little Sean, who was close with Diddy and Biggie, and he was meant to be paid $7,000 for the work. It was November 30th, 1994. Tupac, along with three of his associates, entered the Quad Recording Studios lobby in Times Square. A rapper heavily affiliated with Biggie, Lil Cease, yelled down to him that Biggie and Puff were upstairs recording. Pac and his three associates encountered another three unknown men dressed in army clothes. This was Brooklyn fashion, so Pac assumed they were with Biggie, who was recording in a studio upstairs. Before Pac and his group could enter the elevator, the three unknown men pulled out 9mm guns and ordered Pac and his group to get on the floor, but instead of listening to their instruction, Pac pulled his own gun. He was robbed of his jewelry, beaten, and shot. Pac played dead until they left, and when the coast was clear, he made his way to the elevator and took it upstairs where Biggie had been recording. When he reached their floor, Pac said they looked surprised and guilty, but Puff said they showed Pac nothing but love and concern. Pac became paranoid. He said it was more than a random heist. He said it's like they were mad at him. Pac claimed to have taken five bullets, including shots to the head and through his scrotum, but forensic evidence suggested he likely shot himself, which is a whole other rumor battle of its own. Puff and Biggie steadily denied their involvement in the crime or any prior knowledge of it. On December 1st, 1994, Pac arrived to New York City in a wheelchair wearing bandages. On this day, he would be acquitted on sodomy and weapons charges, but he would be charged guilty of sexual abuse. His bail was set to $3 million, and he was sentenced to a minimum of one and a half years in prison. He was unable to raise bail and served most of his sentence at Clinton Correctional Facility in upstate New York. Pac's third studio album, Me Against the World, was released shortly after his sentence began. Pac considered retiring the music industry drama until he heard a rumor while he was in prison that began to sink in. A rumor that came from people Pac trusted, that Biggie in fact knew in advance about the Quad Studios shooting. You see, Biggie's single titled Who Shot Ya, the B-side track from Big Papa, was recorded months before Pac's shooting, but it was released on February 20th, 1995 while Pac was in prison, and he heard it while he was in the yard at the correctional facility. If you listen to the song, the lyrics can seem like a subliminal taunt that led the world to believe it was a diss record. Pac took this as a haunt by Biggie, meaning he had something to do with it and was trying to get under his skin. He began to aggressively accuse both Diddy and Biggie of being involved in the attack at Quad Studios. Biggie and Puff both again denied having any involvement in the shooting, but Pac and the majority of the hip-hop community interpreted it as Big's way of taunting him. The song was originally intended to be on a Mary J. Blige album titled My Life, and it was meant for what would eventually become the K. Murray interlude. This was even evidenced on the track because it used the same instrumental. But Biggie's version was too hard and violent, so Keith Murray was asked to record his version instead. This misunderstanding and untimely release of the song only added fuel to the East Coast-West Coast rivalry. 
While in prison, Pac asked his wife, Keisha Morris, who he married while in prison, to relay a message to Suge Knight. Suge Knight was the head of West Coast Death Row Records. Suge sent $15,000 and put it on Pac's books. Pac was happy with this and asked if he could send another message. This message was asking if Suge could come visit him. Suge began meeting with Pac while he was incarcerated and through death row's lawyer, offered to help him get out of his sentence early. Suge and Pac grew closer. Suge didn't only try to recruit Pac to his label, but he offered him a place in the death row family. In July of 1995, Biggie was on the cover of the magazine who previously had him in the unsigned hype section, The Source. In August of 1995, Biggie's protege group, Junior Mafia, Mafia being an acronym for Masters at Finding Intelligent Attitudes, released their debut album, which was called Conspiracy. Junior Mafia consisted of his friends from childhood and rappers Lil' Kim and Lil' Cease, who both went on to have solo careers. At the Source Awards, Biggie was named Best New Solo Artist, Lyricist of the Year, Live Performer of the Year, and Debut Album of the Year. He was also awarded Rap Artist of the Year at the Billboard Music Awards. Aside from Juicy, Biggie's debut album had two other singles, Big Papa, which would reach number one on the US rap chart, and One More Chance, which sold over a million copies in 1995 alone. Biggie even became friends with Shaquille O'Neal around this time after meeting him at a listening session for the song Gimme the Loop. Biggie had mentioned him in the lyrics, which led to O'Neal becoming a fan. Shaquille O'Neal, being a musician himself, requested a collaboration with Biggie for the song You Can't Stop the Rain, which was on O'Neal's third studio album of the same name, which was released later in November of 1996. On August 3rd, 1995, with Pac in prison, Suge headed to New York City after a visit with Pac. The Source's annual award show was being held at Madison Square Garden's Paramount Theater. Death Row Records was the opening act, and they had spent around $100,000 on it, including life-size jail cell replicas. Suge later took the stage to accept an award for his label. He threw a pointed barb at Diddy, the head of Biggie's label, and told the audience, any artist out there want to be an artist and stay a star and don't have to worry about the executive producer trying to be all in the videos, all on the recordings dancing, come to death row. The audience started booing. This was a jab at Diddy, who often did insert himself into his performer's works. A lot of people were unaware of what brought on Suge's attack on Diddy, as they had been cool with each other until recent. Earlier in the year, Suge had even invited Biggie to perform at his Las Vegas club, Club 662. That show never happened, but it never affected their relationship. This was Pac's doing. Earlier that morning while visiting Pac, Pac didn't just agree to join Suge's death row label, but he also told Suge his feelings on Biggie. He told Suge he needs him to ride with him because he was going to destroy Bad Boy Records. He felt in his heart that Biggie and Diddy were involved in his shooting. Suge pledged his loyalty and took on all of Pac's burdens. By the end of 1995, Biggie was the top-selling male solo artist and rapper on the US pop and R&B charts. He was in the start of his prime. But Pac's persistence and belief that Biggie and Diddy had something to do with the attack at Quad Studio led him to convince Suge of the same, and what resulted was a rivalry so intense it would claim the lives of both Biggie and Pac. And on that note, we will get into the rivalry and deaths of these two artists next week in part two. Thank you for listening. The intro and outro were both made using BandLab and edited with Audacity.
The various news clipping sound effects and other sound effects in the intro were found on LS Sound Effects on YouTube and other various news videos. You can find us on social media at Hotline Crime or email at hotlinecrimepodcast at gmail.com.